0: The world is full of very many animals with very many different solutions to sensing the world. Aristotle got it wrong. We have more than five senses. We have these senses that kind of collect information about the world or about our bodies and secretly inform our perception of the world. Our sense of pain. One of the scientists described it to me as our guardian angel. The sense of touch being the first to come online. By demonizing touch, we are depriving ourselves of
1: Let's do this. Welcome back to
2: the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I cannot wait for you to hear today's episode no pun intended, with the hearing. Okay, that was a really corny joke. I just cannot describe enough how fascinating Jackie Higgins' work is. Her book, Sentient, blew my mind, and then connecting with her, she is just such a fun, intelligent, wonderful human being. I really think you guys will enjoy today's episode. We dive deep into so many topics, like how many senses do we actually have? It may be more than you think. Things like pheromones, Proprioception, the idea of consciousness, fascinating things about octopuses. Yes, octopuses, not octopi. I looked this up. And owls. Cool things about color our sense of direction, a pretty cool talent related to our sense of balance, especially if you are a ballet dancer, the effect of the earth's rotation and so much more. There will be a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com/sentient. There will also be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group IF Biohackers Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that i love and then check out my instagram find the friday announcement post and again comment there to enter to win something that i love if you are enjoying the show it would mean the absolute world 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 if you could take a brief moment and write a review on apple podcast it helps so much more than most people realize honestly friends it's the best way to support the show so thank you so so much in advance for that i have a very exciting announcement friends I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles so please join me there. My handle is MelanieAvalonOfficial. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update, it is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MDLogic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com MDLogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys, if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. On a mission to change this every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work i am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel their vitamin c serum they have shampoo and conditioner skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all Beauty Counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Jackie Higgins. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So the backstory on today's conversation, so there are a lot of different ways that I book guests for this show. Sometimes their publicists or their agents will reach out to me. Sometimes it's through a friend. Sometimes I directly reach out. Sometimes publishing houses will send me a catalog of the books that they're working with or representing at that moment and ask if I want to interview (laughs) any of those authors. So I got one of those emails a while ago now, and I was looking through all of the books on the list, and one immediately jumped out at me. It was called Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. I saw the cover, and I was like, I'm in. I didn't even have to like, I didn't even have to like research it. I was like, I have got to read this book. I have got to do this interview. I booked it. I, no pun intended, got the book, read it. And it was, oh my goodness, friends, everything I was hoping it would be and more. I was already historically, I don't know, I think about our senses a lot. I have historically, like, it's just hard to know with reality what reality actually is and like I've thought about how our brain can make up stories about things so I've always been a little bit incredulous about how we're perceiving the world and then on top of that wondering if there were you know More things we could be perceiving. And reading this book by Jackie Higgins, she goes into the animal kingdom and talks about all of these incredible senses in different animals and what we can learn from that, how it applies to humans. And it was really, again, no pun intended, eye opening experience. I feel like this is just like ripe for puns. It's difficult to avoid the puns. I know. I feel like everything I say is going to be a pun. But in any case, I have so many questions and I cannot wait for this conversation. So Jackie, thank you so much for being here.
0: Wow. Melanie, thank you for having me on. And thank you for such, it's lovely to hear the backstory of how it all came to be. And I'm really delighted you enjoyed the book. That gives me a warm glow. (laughs) Some form of some sense.
2: (laughs) Honestly, I do love all the books that I have on because it's something I really want to read about. But yours was one of the books where I just had fun, like so much fun reading it and while learning a lot.
0: That's really great to hear. I mean, I used to make, before becoming a writer, I used to make documentaries, wildlife films and science documentaries. And my, my Job has always been to try and you know tell stories that aren't told because often you know they're kind of they're in you know they're normally found in dusty scientific journals. So translating them and making them fun—if I've succeed—if you say they're fun, then I've succeeded. That's great. You definitely did. I definitely had that commentary in my head of just
2: how much I was enjoying it. Well, you just touched on it a little bit right now, but for listeners who are not familiar with your work, I would love to hear a little bit about your backstory. So you have appeared on you know numerous outlets, National Geographic, PBS Nova, Discovery Channel, like you mentioned making documentaries. You worked with the BBC, and
0: now writing books. And you said it appeared, but I was always behind the camera. So I've always been a director or a producer or a researcher for these documentaries. So this actually writing a book was much more of a personal endeavor. But the way that I've structured the chapters was very much, very much couched in what I know about telling stories with a camera lens, Um, how to tell stories. You know, when we worked, I worked for a long time at the BBC making documentaries, for example, on Horizon documentaries, which are like Nova. And we were taught how to tell stories about science that would engage people. And before that, I used to make wildlife films. And before that, I did a degree in zoology and Richard Dawkins was my tutor at Oxford many years ago. So he actually, the first, I hadn't spoken to him in a long time. And I sent him this this book when it was finished and he read it and enjoyed it and, and wrote me a blurb actually, which was wonderful. So yeah, I've always been interested in wildlife since I was a little girl pootling around in rock pools in Cornwall. And specifically, I suppose, in what wildlife can teach us about ourselves. I grew up reading books like Desmond Morris's The Naked Ape <laughs> which I don't think many people know about, but it kind of informed the way I view the world. I'm interested in biology and the animal kingdom in order to understand myself a bit better.
2: I love this so much. I actually, my background, well, I went to film school. So that's the reason actually I love this show is because I feel like it combines similar to you, like my love of research and learning and everything with a more like approachable format
0: for people to experience it. It's not until you've explained something, I think, that you understand it. I mean, sometimes you think you understand it, but then being forced to, you know, either make a film about it or write it out, I think actually really distills your thoughts and it helps that you, you understand something.
2: Yeah, actually to that point, because one of the questions I was wondering, so when you decided to write this book, because there are so many animals, so many senses, we can talk about that. How did you decide which animals to use? And in that experience, did you have that experience that you just mentioned where you kind of learned, you know, while crystallizing it in the book, did you kind of learn
0: more by doing that? Totally. I mean, for every animal that I chose, I mean, the conceit of the book is that one animal will teach us about one sense. And as I'm sure we're about to find out, the idea is that Aristotle got it wrong. (laughs) It feels a bit mean, um, hundreds of years later saying this, but essentially we have more than five senses. So there are more than five chapters in the book. And I took an animal, it was great fun trying to figure out which animal was going to tell the story, for example, of our color vision or tell the story, for example, of our sense of balance and that was, that, that took time. And I also wanted a balance within the book, you know, kind of insects and mammals and, I uh, say, so butterflies and octopuses and cheetahs and wonderful creatures known as star-nosed moles. So that was all part of the fun, figuring out who would tell the story. This also
2: felt like a film a little bit in that you went unexpected places, like with the, the colors, for example, you talk about these certain type of shrimp, but you don't open by talking about their color vision, you open by talking about their, like how fast they are, or how they can like attack things really fast. Yeah,
0: they've got the most, the fastest punch in the animal kingdom or some extraordinary thing that scientists at Berkeley Berkeley University have have actually studied and have numbers to put on, you know, figures to put against against the punch. Yes, so I, it, it is part of that storytelling technique, almost like the book, the chapters divided into scenes And each scene kind of propels you through to the next scene. You meet someone, you understand why this person's interested in the shrimp. You meet someone in an island in the Pacific, the island of Pingalap, where people can't see color. So So I end up kind of, Juxtaposing these stories that you might not have thought would go together. And one of the fun things, actually, I remember I was trying to figure out who was going to tell my story of taste. And I ended up deciding on the catfish, the Goliath catfish, because I had to choose the biggest catfish or one of the biggest catfish. And the scientist, Linda Bartishock, Professor Linda Bartishock, whose story of super tasters. In humans has been told time and time again, loved the telling of her story in sentient because it juxtaposed her against a catfish, so she's never so it is in the juxtaposition and the surprise of the stories that that I guess a kind of arc a narrative comes through, I hope in an interesting way.
2: no, it definitely did, and there are a lot of like cliffhangers, like you talk about the spiders that building their webs and rebuilding their webs every night. And I was just like, what is happening?
0: (laughs) So there's so many things. More scientists looking, looking at creatures that we'd never, we probably don't notice them when we pass them in the woods, but they go off searching for different species and can't find the species. I think they end up calling one the unicorn spider because it's so difficult to track down. And yes, they're looking at these spiders to understand circadian rhythms. And I use these spiders to explore our sense of time, another another sense that we wouldn't necessarily have included in the original kit bag of senses because it's something that's with us almost subconsciously all the time. It's actually, I became fascinated by that chapter and I'm still researching it. So I know even more about time than I did when writing this book. But yes, secrets. So so in addition to the kind of overt senses, the senses we feel like the sense of pain or the sense of pleasure, the ability to see color or the ability to see in, in the dark. So in addition to those uh, tangible conscious senses that we have, I also use a term I first read with Oliver Sacks, who's an author who I loved, the neurologist who wrote books like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I've always loved his books. And he talks about secret senses. And so I also explore our secret senses. So senses that we, we have these senses that kind of collect information about the world or about our bodies. Sensing our body is also a sense and secretly inform our perception of the world. Subconsciously.
2: I love this so much. So some questions about that. Well, first of all, so I wrote down in my notes that you know, most of us in Aristotle decided that we have five senses. But then I wrote, but now we know that we have at least nine plus, but then I have, we might have up to 22. And then I have, well, maybe we have 33.
0: It <laughs> depends who you ask. And it depends how you define a sense. How do we define a sense? It's the, you know, the book's called sentient, but how do you define sentience? So it's the same, it's a lot of these terms that are bandied around. There's no actual definition. So how do you define a sense? I mean, if you define a sense according to a sensor, so if you imagine our body, You think of your brain in a vat, in a dark vat of your skull, and it's not connected to the world. And the only way that it can collect information about what's going on beyond our skin and within our skin, but the only way it can do that is using sensors that collect information, be it light information or the vibration of molecules in the air, i.e. sound information or chemical information like smells or like tastes. The only way it can do that are through these sensors. So take touch and touch probably for me was the most surprising sense in our skin. I mean, I've I've said this before, but I kind of we always look up to the stars and we're slightly dizzied by this this vast expanse that we don't quite understand. Well, I now look to my skin, which this, our skin is the largest sense organ that we have. And I look to our skin and scientists are only beginning to understand what's going on inside our skin. We know a lot about the kind of way that we feel the topography of the world. And that's through various sensors, different sensors that we have in our skin. And some, you know, fire when we squeeze our hand into a glove. Some might fire when we're feeling something vibratory. Some might fire according to temperature. So so even your, your sense of touch has so many different senses. Sorry, I'll get round to the point. I've got off on one. But essentially, if you define sense according, a sense according to the sensor, I mean, touch is very many different senses. I didn't. It then becomes too unmanageable. So I didn't in, in my book. I defined it instead more broadly according to perception. So I split sense touch into two senses. The star-nosed mole, I use the star-nosed mole to explore the way that our fingers feel the world. So the topography of the world beneath our fingertips, that's what the star-nosed mole can tell us about. And then I use the vampire bat to talk about the emotional feelings of the world, the pleasures, the pains, and how and we all know a touch is an incredibly emotionally loaded experience. And that's a very different sense from feeling the roughness of a walnut or the smoothness of a glass of water. So yes, so that's so it kind of depends on how you de- de- define a sense as to what is as, as to how many senses there are.
2: I love it so much. And actually, while we're talking about touch, because I, I did have some thoughts and questions about it, because you talk about how touch is so vital that it's basically our first sense that we have, and then our last usually to go in the end. Yes.
0: So I got really interested in these slow touch fibers, these, these sensors in our skin that scientists are really in the last few decades only just discovering that, that give us a sense of the, emotion, the emotional content of the world, I suppose. One of the scientists who I spoke to, Francis McGlone, was fascinating on this subject. And he talked about the sense of touch being the first to come online. So when you are a fetus inside your mother's womb, Sense of touch is one of the, our first senses that we that we have, and he talks about the the swirl of the amniotic fluid around the the, the baby's skin, and the baby has these little hairs on their on, on its body, and that fluid kind of enlivening these hairs, and that's basically being you know the very first feelings of and senses of touch that they, that they, that we get, and ha- he says how. He took me on a journey, as I and, and I take the reader on this journey in the book, about how he thinks. Therefore, that sense of um, self is essentially within the skin. You know, you, he talks about mothers endlessly caressing and cuddling their little babies, and how this kind of reinstates a sense of self. You know, you become the baby at some point becomes aware of what is them and what is beyond their skin. So it's it's really interesting, and it's it's very current interesting science. I mean, when I was writing this book, in the process of writing this book, another of the scientists who I spoke to uh, with regard to this chapter, David Julius, and I spoke to him about these little trip sensors in our skin that enable us to feel heat and pain and the experiments that they did with vampire bats, because this is how vampire bats, they have specialized trip sensors like the ones in our skin that enable them to detect the warmth of a vein, or rather an artery pumping under the skin. Professor Julius won the Nobel Prize for his work while I was was researching this book. So he won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. So it's it's really fascinating and current science. And it was particularly, sorry, I, I could go on and on, but also while writing this, of course, COVID hit. And speaking to Francis McGlone, he he believes that this sense of touch is so important to our well-being and our mental health that the fact that, you know, no one could touch one another, that touch had become demonized during the COVID epidemic was a real issue for him. I ended up writing a few pieces for papers over in Britain for this reason, because he worries about that and worried about that. He, He doesn't think we fully understand how these senses are working and what they give us, and he fears that by not touching, by demonising touch, we are depriving ourselves of some essential something essential that, that, that humans need and, and, and crave and require. So yes, it was a really so touch. Those two chapters were I would never have imagined where those chapters led me, and it was it was fascinating. I that, I loved those two chapters. I love it so much and it's interesting because I was thinking about
2: it I don't know if it's even you know worth doing a hierarchy or ranking senses but I feel like touch would be the one sense like if you lost your sense of touch survival wise I feel like that would be the most dangerous to lose because you could get hurt and you wouldn't be able to address anything like you can adapt to you know people being blind or deaf but if you couldn't touch I feel like you'd be in a da- really dangerous situation.
0: Dangerous situation. So Francis, back to Francis, he said, I think his mother was a, a teacher or a nursery teacher. And she, one day, he remembered her, her coming back and telling him this when he was a young boy and it really left an impression. She asked the children that day which sense they would least like to, to lose. And, you know, nearly everyone said sight because we're such visual creatures, we find that quite difficult. And most people then might say that it wouldn't want to be deaf. And then most people, very few people would probably worry about losing taste. But a lot of people might worry about losing smell. But apparently there was this one little boy who said touch. And that really stuck with her. And it really stuck with Francis, who ended up becoming a scientist studying touch. And as his work is showing... It is much more layered and much more fascinating and much more fundamental too. I mean, take back to David Julius's work, the chap who won the Nobel Prize and his, his research into trip sensors. These sensors tell you whether something is cold or whether something is hot or whether something is painfully cold or painfully hot. And pain, our sense of pain, one of the scientists described it to me as our guardian angel and recounted stories of people who are unable to feel pain and consequently end up doing stupid things and dying young. There is a story in my book of of one such case. So yes, without pain, we wouldn't hold back from things that are dangerous. And then without pleasure, well, maybe the human race wouldn't have continued. (laughs) For obvious reasons, but yes, fundamental, and 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 we we've yet to discover how fundamental. Is
2: there a difference in touching something and being touched?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And these this so touching something was much more the story of the star-nosed mole. Touching something and feeling the topography, the ridges, the size, whereas being touched is different. And if you look at the if you look at the distribution of different sensors at our fingertips as opposed to in our arms or in our back or in our neck, again and, and elsewhere on our body, there will be different sensors, or a different concentration of those sensors in different places. So yes, being touched and touching are different.
2: I was thinking about it because I was thinking then if you touch your two fingers together, that's like four different signals. That's each finger touching and being touched. And I was just thinking about, so how is the brain interpreting that
0: information? And then I guess this is the impossibility of being able to tickle yourself is part of that story too. I clearly, it's much more, a, it's a story that's not just about the senses. It's also about how the brain interprets it. So yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tangle of interesting information.
2: Yeah, because you didn't talk about tickling in the book. Do you know the
0: purpose of tickling? I don't. I mean, I've read various evolutionary kind of, you know, what is the purpose of tickling? I mean, I, I, I don't know that there is an answer, but it is interesting that idea that you can't tickle yourself. It just points out the difference between information might be collected, but then is reacted to differently according to whether you're the giver or receiver or both when, when it reaches your brain. I have a question about
2: that. Um, But before that, just talking about losing our senses, one of my defining memories from high school, actually, it was from our teacher who ended up becoming my favorite teacher of basically all time. One of the first questions he ever asked us in our class was, if we lost all of our senses, or if we never had our senses to begin with, would we be aware of ourselves? And that
0: question haunted me, (laughs) like haunted me. (laughs) Yes. I don't think we would. I mean, golly, let's, I mean, help. (laughs) But essentially, essentially our senses, whether they're collecting information about the exterior world or the interior world, there was another really interesting chapter that I loved writing. And that was the one on proprioception, this idea of sensing your body and where it is in space. That's an interior sense. So here, so if you're deprived and, and, and we meet Ian Waterman, who's I met Ian, who is one of the incredible, incredibly rare people who's lost their sense of body, their sense of proprioception. So he, when he closes his eyes, when he was in the hospital after this virus had wiped out the nervous link, essentially, between his proprioceptors and his brain, after that had been wiped out and he couldn't feel his body, he would close his eyes and he, he felt disembodied. I mean, he could feel... So every, from everything below his neck, when he closed his eyes, he could not feel his body. So, so imagine that. So it it kind of ev- the plot thickens with regard to what your teacher was asking, because you are losing your body awareness if you don't have proprioception. Yeah, just a comment on the proprioception.
2: That was actually one of the times I actually laughed out loud, and I wasn't laughing at him, but <laughs> basically for listeners. And you talk about this in the book that other parts of our brain can fill in if we have a, you know, a lack. So he was able to use vision to, you know, control his body movements, even not having proprioception. But you talk about how if he like wasn't looking at his arm, for example, it would just like do things, which is like very so interesting to think about.
0: He didn't well he didn 't know where it was and what it was doing, like the octopus is my, is my point Ian is one of these exceptional people i mean he i mean he, i suppose he 's been forced into the, this predicament with this ex, ex, with what happened to him, but the way that he reacted to the situation is is immensely noble and extraordinary and brave and when you talk to him, you know he jokes and makes little, but he is he is an amazing man. And he was very generous to, to share his story and, and talk about it. It is, it is difficult to imagine what it is. You asked earlier, what is sentience? What is consciousness? It's impossible to imagine another person's subjective experience, particularly when it's so different from your own. And I think the external senses, perhaps we can get a better idea of, like it's easier to imagine what it might be like to be blind. We simply have to close our eyes. But our sense of proprioception is so enmeshed in the fabric of our musculature and our bodies that you can't tease it apart. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose this sense. So Ian tried to explain it to me, and I think he did brilliantly. His effort in order to regain control of his body, given he'd lost this sense, as you said, to use his vision to basically take over where proprioception had left off, and he has to watch and he had to reteach himself. He had to break down every motion and he had to then watch as he rebuilds it in real time in order that he can peel his back off the hospital, could peel his back off the hospital bed and could sit up and could reach for a glass of water. And now when you, when, when you see him today, he's doing all these things and you wouldn't notice there was anything amiss. But if the lights go out, He says he crumples like a rag doll.
2: I know it's not even remotely the same thing, but the the closest thing I could think of would maybe be when you're looking in a mirror and everything's backwards and you're trying to move accordingly. You kind of have to like tell yourself
0: how to move because it's backwards in the mirror. I suppose that that introduces an element of confusion between you and your body. It's not an element of loss, but it is an element of confusion trying to figure out I know what you mean, and i I get confused by that too, even having made documentaries and you know camera right, camera left, or having written about photography and and you know I've written books on on art photographs, and yes, I'm still confused by that, perhaps that's just a problem with my left and my right.
2: <laughs> well, speaking of imagining senses and also left and right, it's also probably hard for us to imagine having senses that that we might have but might not be as intense or strong as they could be. So the one I'm talking about is you talk about our sense of direction. I loved that chapter so much. This blew my mind. You talk about how they did a study where they would take people, I think, they would like drive them all over. They wouldn't know where they were basically. And then most people could still, even having like been all around and turned around, they could still basically point in the direction of home unless they used a sort of Faraday cage type situation where they were, you know, blocking them off from, you know, the electromagnetic. Magnetic information. Yeah. And then they couldn't anymore, which is fascinating. The second part would be, you know, that tribe
0: that always knows direction
2: The tribe that like always knows, have they studied them with the Faraday?
0: So Joe Kirschvink, who's the chap at MIT who I spoke to, whose most recent study that suggests we do have a sense of direction, is hoping to get out and study them properly and analytically. But they do have an unerring sense of direction, whether it's informed by stars in the sky or where the sun is in the sky or how long the shadows are or, you know, whether it's informed by visual cues that they're picking up on or whether it's informed by a another sense is the question. So of all the senses, so I have 12 chapters in my book. The sense of direction is, is not yet proven in humans, but there's lots of tempting information to suggest it's pro- it, it could be there. It's certainly proven in lots of species, migratory birds are, are the example that I use. But what's even even within animals, what's been difficult, and what's been scientists have been trying to figure out, is they've been looking for the sense organ that enables them to detect the magnetic signals. So the question is whether there are two leading theories at the moment. One is that there are little magnetite crystals inside cells that essentially act like a mini magnet like a little mini compass and the other really fascinating work again very contemporary coming out of all sorts of universities around the world is the theory of the quantum compass and this idea that say in a bird's eye there are these proteins called cryptochromes and they have some form of quantum reaction with the magnetic with magnetic lines that, in, that enables the bird to perceive the magnetic field. I and in mean, there they're theorizing that they could actually these birds could actually see the magnetic field. So in addition, my first two chapters are on site. I talk about cones being the sensors that give us colour and rods being the sensors that, give us, that enable us to see in the dark. So in addition to the cones and rods of the bird's retina, giving this bird the ability to see the ocean that it's been flying over for the past few days, day in, day out, without stopping, in addition to that, there may be some kind of overlay whereby they can see which way is north and which way is south. Obviously, they don't think of it as North and South, but to to be able to give them information on how to give them a sense of direction.
2: Yeah, that is crazy. And that makes you think, like, if you could have that experience of whatever they see, because I think, like, hearing this now, we're like, oh, well, if they saw that, that's not reality is just a direction that they're interpreting. But if that's what you see, then to them maybe that literally is real like that is the world.
0: That is reality. Well one of my favorite bits is the very end of the book, the, the tale of the duckbilled platypus. And I and I pose this idea that, you know, this creature senses electric currents and this is something we can't do unless they're so sharp that they give us a pain reaction. So we can't, we do not have this sense. So its reality is different to us. So it depends on the senses that animals have that construct your reality. And within our world that we see, we smell, you know, we we engage with, with our five senses plus, with our regular toolbox of senses, within that, there are many other realities realities that perhaps you know birds that see different many more colors or different colors or uv or polar butterflies that see polarized light or so so there's this wonderful i go back to this baron jakob von von Oxcoo, who was a biologist who proposed this idea called the umwelt which is this wonderful word i think for Basically, your umwelt is your reality. It's what your senses have constructed for you as reality. But the duck-bills platypus' -um umwelt is radically different from ours because it's able to sense a whole new dimension of what's really out there that we can't. So its umwelt is different. So all these creatures, you know, the world is full of very many animals with very many different solutions to sensing the world and very many different umwelts. So that should question our reality. It's just our reality is just one reality of very many. So the world is a much more interesting and intriguing place tasted through a goliath catfish's skin or felt through a star-nosed mole's starry-nosed or whatever it is, through an octopus's sense of body.
2: I'm glad you brought up umwelt. It's funny because I I had that in my notes as well and I I didn't remember it from the book and I was like is that a typo? I was like I don't, I don't know what that word is. It's such a great word. We should use it. It's amazing. I know. Like it, it we need to integrate it into our
0: common vernacular because it describes something so well. A couple of weeks ago I went to a WWF, a World Wildlife Foundation evening where Alistair Fothergill, who's a series producer of this new series that's hitting the BBC. It started this weekend with David Attenborough basically doing A Blue Planet, but just on the British Isles. I was up on the podium next to Alistair and a few other people, but we were watching clips from this latest Attenborough series. And of course, You know, making programs, making documentaries, it's a feast of visual imagery. And there were these wonderful scenes of terns, I think it was terns on a beach in Norfolk. And of course, what we were seeing, I knew was completely different from what, that's right, there was a peregrine falcon catching one of these birds. And what that falcon sees is completely different from how we would see reality, because it's got this, I mean, no bird is able to see with such detail at such distance it's almost like if a bird is caught caught in its eyes it's almost like it's been caught in the hairlines of a kind of of a of a rifle so we were talking about you know the, what we see in these wildlife films the visu- the visual feast of them but there's so many other senses that are playing out in reality in those scenes that are shot i mean if only we could make movies i mean it's always visual but you know including the smell and the touch and the taste and the and the sounds um you know quite often a lot of these sounds are created afterwards in wildlife as i know from doing it myself you go to foley booths and you kind of munch a cucumber and you lay that sound on the caterpillar as it's munching through the leaf or you take a damp t- uh, you take a damp cloth and you you flip it and it creates a kind of, of a, you know, the, that lovely sound of a bird flap, a wing flapping. Anyway, yes, I've gone off on one.
2: No, no, no. I love it so much. I've been haunted for years about the concept of, I just don't know if the colors I see are the same colors that you see. Like, what if all of my reds are your greens? And what if it just translated that way?
0: I'm speaking to scientists, highly likely there's, there's a variety in the way we see color. Highly likely you know maybe our photo sensors are tuned just a tiny bit differently but then also how the brain kind of computes you know creates a million different colors from our three different types of photo sensors it's very likely that what you see as red is 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 slightly different from what i see and we know that from people who have serious issues with you know confusing red and green or being as my first chapter talks about people who can't see color at all. so They see the world in in black and white. So yes, color is, is not something that is out there in the world. It's totally a creation of your senses and your brain. Color is an easy one to kind of envision, but then when you get into the other senses, it's kind of even more of a mind bend.
1: Something
2: else, I swear, these are things I've been thinking about for years, like since childhood. I was so happy. I used to always think about like literally when I was like really little, I think when I first learned about how color works or like light and color and how it's reflected, I started thinking about, does that mean that in a dark room, like a red apple, like it's literally not red. Like it's, it's not that I just can't see the red. Like it's literally not red.
0: It's only red through your eye and my eye. And then through, uh, you know, through another animal that can't see red And then you've got this co-evolutionary kind of conversation between, remember that the apple evolved and evolved those pigments in order to attract particular eyes. And I'm not talking about Eve and the apple, (laughs) but I mean, whomever whomever the apple first, you know, know, you've got this wonderful kind of co-evolutionary race between flowers and insect pollinators or fruits and birds that disperse them. So therefore, actually, probably what's important is how the fruit or the flower looks to the creature for whom it's enticing. Yeah. (laughs) You know, bumblebees, all those wonderful stories of bumblebees being able to see UV light because and then you have blooms, flowers. That, that have these little kind of runway patterns of UV tracks saying, this is the way to the nectaries, follow these lines and we'll guide you in. But of course, these signals are completely invisible to our eye. <laughs> so this is back to the umwelt and then shared umwelt. I mean, in a, shared ecologies and, and, and communities within the broader picture of this extraordinary world that is more diverse and layered than we can imagine.
2: Something I thought was really mind-blowing is you talk about the role of randomness in seeing, that it's something about how single photons are bouncing around and there's an aspect of randomness as to whether or not we, they actually land on, was it the
0: cones or the rods? On a sensor the rods. This is, this is the story of the deep sea spookfish that lives in the, in the kind of ocean abyss where so few photons reach down from the sun. You know, the sun's got to hit the water and then that light's got to travel down and down and down and it loses energy as it goes. And then very few f- photons reach the depths where this fish is. And then, and then they might hit the eye, but they might bounce off. They might bounce off at the wrong angle or they might not, they might hit the retina, but not the protein that's going to react to within the rod, rhodopsin, which is going to react and send a message to, ultimately to the brain. So yes, there is, yes, I hadn't thought of that. I, I mean, I wrote it, but I wasn't thinking of the random aspect, but of course, of course.
2: On top of that it is super clean i know people like to see organic labels friends i have learned so much about the certification industry and honestly the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification that's what i do with my avalon x supplements and that's what dave does with danger coffee so with danger coffee they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards and it is third-party lab tested, so you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked Farm Direct Beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee, epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with a coupon code Danger Coffee. Because I read that and I was like, well, that's a little bit distressing because that means everything I see, you know, if there's an aspect of randomness to it, then maybe I could be seeing things different ways. But I was wondering, do you think the brain because i was actually reading an article last night it was not about this it was actually a list of like 10 random unique types of pie don't don't ask why but um but in any case the first one on the list was an apple pie not made with apple and they were talking about how people eat it and still will say it tastes like apple pie and they were talking about the role of the perception of the brain and how it like fills in information if it's like expecting something. So I was just wondering if maybe with seeing, even if there is an aspect of randomness, maybe my brain has sort of decided what everything looks like. I'm just conjecturing, but me,
0: (laughs) and it just kind of like, you know, goes with that. You've got this bottom up influx of information from the senses to the brain, but then the brain has this kind of top down. It kind of chooses what it listens to and what it doesn't listen to. So I remember when I was at the BBC, we made, we made a, a series on the brain. For me, the most extraordinary sequence was these experiments that had been done, I think it was with basketball. They'd basically filmed, they'd ask someone who's sitting in a booth watching a clip of people playing basketball. Oh, I love this one. I love this, I love this one. Yeah, the first is asked ask, count the number of basketballs, watch that ball and see how many. And your brain, therefore, top down is so focused on counting that it doesn't know, not the elephant in the room, but the gorilla in the room. And then it says, and then they say, okay, we're going to play back the same clip. And this time look for the gorilla. And you see there was a gorilla the whole time, except you never saw it. So that's a classic example of your brain is very much in what attention it gives to, it chooses, you know, it it, it has a, your, your brain also is in charge of what you're seeing. It's not necessarily the reality.
2: You really do only see what you want to see in a way. Maybe, I guess maybe the first time you see something, do you see it more, more objectively?
0: And then you make assumptions. I mean, these are deeply philosophical questions. I mean, that's, I think, why this subject area really interests me because it does leave science and you are, you're left with a lot of metaphysical questions, questions that are quite difficult to prove one way or another, but the delight of asking them is, is, is great.
2: (laughs) You talk about how we historically thought that the cortexes of the brain, like there's like the part of the brain that sees, you know, that it's all individual. Maybe it's more nuanced and more complicated than that. So, how does it work in the brain?
0: Yes, I suppose, again, the story of Eshref Armagan, who is a blind artist and his brain has been so, so he. He feels the world and then he draws what he feels. And of course, he's been told various things like he uses color in a naive way. He's been told when it's an apple to paint it green or to paint it red. He's never seen color. But he feels, I mean, for him, the world comes alive under his fingertips. And he says, he has this, he went talking to him. He's a, he's a lovely gentleman. And he says how feeling the world and touch, sense of touch, has eradicated his blindness. He was studied at MIT by neuroscientists who asked him to feel objects and then draw them. And they, while he was doing that, they scanned his brain. And what was extraordinary is that, and, and, and I suppose it's not extraordinary when you think about it, the part of our brain, our somatosensory cortex is the kind of proper name, but it's the part of our brain that basically deals with the information that our fingers are feeling about the world, how, how our sense of touch. And our body is feeling about the world. Our sen- basically our sense of touch is, is is processed in in this area of the brain. And of course, in in with Eshref, it's not like that part of the brain is not being used. <laughs> it's not like it's lying fallow, doing nothing. Of course, it's being co-opted by the sense that most needs processing, and for him, that is his sense of touch. There's a brilliant book by Eagleman called Live Wired. It's called Live Wired over in the UK. I don't know what the title is, but it came out around the same time as Sentient. But he he's a neuroscientist who, who talks about the plasticity of the brain, the fact that the brain is live wired. And in my book, I, I talked to, because of the book, I talked to scientists scientist called Alvaro Pasqualeone, who did these amazing studies where he asked people to, would they mind foregoing their sight for a while? And so he blindfolded them and they put little bits of photographic paper underneath the blindfolds. So they knew that these people had never cheated because if they cheat and let in a crack of light, that little piece of photographic paper would be exposed. So they knew that these people hadn't cheated. For a few days, they they basically, these people were blind or his colleagues taught them, how to to use braille to read. So they were exercising, they were using their sense of touch. And in that short period of days, their brain started, it's live-wired, it started to rewire. And so parts of the brain that they normally had used for vision were now being co-opted by their sense of touch. So our brain is this kind of plastic organ within our skull that is basically processing whatever information it can get hold of. And so Alvaro Pascal Leon was talking about the fact this is, you know, th- th- this is a completely different way to view the brain, that it's not divided into these, that the cortex is not divided into this is the area for sight, this is the area for hearing, this is the area for touch. It's a kind of, that's an old-fashioned view. And looking at these unusual brains has taught us so much more. With all of the different senses, because I know you talk about
2: it with at least one of them, which I think was smelling that like, if we tried to smell better, we could. So for all the different senses, if we really focused, can we enhance any of our senses basically?
0: Yes. So if we try to smell better, I think what I mean is, and, and as you said, focus, if we give it attention. Did I read you what you, you're interested in wine? I am. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So there you go. I bet you give every glass of wine that you sip and then drink and enjoy a lot of attention. You probably smell it and taste it in a way that many people won't. And because you're exercising that sense, you will improve that sense More of your brain will be devoted to kind of, you know, your understanding how that wine smells, why it smells different from the one you had the night before, what's different about it. So absolutely. And that is one of the messages throughout the book, the fact that our brain is plastic. There's the lovely story of from Oliver Sack's of the gentleman who had lost his, or hadn't lost his sense of balance, but he was walking at a tilt. And so his friends had called him the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And this <laughs> and this gentleman came into Oliver Sacks's office and said, well, I'm not quite sure why I'm here. There's nothing wrong with me. As he was leaning over at a tilt, he refused to see it. And I think that Sacks had to film him and then play it back for the gentleman to realize that he wasn't straight, He built some spectacles, which basically I think had a little plumb line dangling off the the bridge of the nose as far as I can gather from the way that Sachs wrote about it. When he saw this plumb line and he saw it was swinging to one side, he would then adjust his stature so he would be straight. It probably felt quite awkward to him to begin with, but he kept doing that and the brain consequently adjusted and he didn't need to wear the specs for him to walk straight again. So... So yes, we we absolutely, the brain is, the plasticity of the brain means we can improve upon our senses by giving them attention and, and just exercising them. Like we might, you know, practice a football school, a football kick or whatever it is. <laughs>
2: and it can also happen without us realizing it. Like you talk about the role of balance again and dancers and dizziness. That blew my mind. You, you talk about how... um I don't know what, even, what it's even called. Mad
0: pirouettes, the ballet dancers. mm
2: mm-hmm, yes. And how they don't get as dizzy, but there's actually something really happening in their brain with that.
0: Yes, the, again, amazing study conducted in London by a local scientist, and he, he wanted to understand the, the ballerina's brain. What is it about the ballerina's brain that means they don't get dizzy? Di- ballerinas are taught all sorts of techniques. You know, they do, they snap their head around so your balance organs are in the inner uh, inner ear, locked inside your 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 skull. They work on fluid and hairs. And so if you're when you're turning around, if you lock your eyes back onto a fixed point, that should minimize the amount of information and, and it should quieten down your your balance organs. So they'll fire less to the brain. So that's one technique. But seamungle looked at the ballerina's brain and realized there was a Difference between their brains. And he, I think from memory, he juxtaposed them against people who are equally athletic, but not for balance. I think they were rowers or something like that. So these people were very fit, but they had very different brains. And it was, I think it was part of the cerebellum, the part of the cerebellum that is used for balance, had shrunk. So so actually. They were getting less information from the balance information because I suppose it's because because their sense of proprioception has stepped in. So they have this immaculate sense of of balance by knowing where their body is. So they don't maybe need to listen to their balance so much anymore. They're not going to fall over because they have such a highly trained body. Their sense of balance was reduced. Reduced. Wow. Wow which was completely counterintuitive. So dizziness is, are there different causes
2: for it? Or is it always a saturation of too much movement? And so too much,
0: too much like balanced stimuli? No, I think with all these, with all the unusual cases that I encountered in the book, there are always multiple stages where the information doesn't get through. So it could be at the level of the sensor. Or it could be, for example, let me think, with, with regard to that. What happens with alcohol? Yeah, yeah. Oh, with balance. So that that I doubt that, ver- that will addle the sensor. I would think that will addle the brain. The colorblind people on the island of Pingalap who I discussed, they had a mutation that meant that the cone wasn't working. So that's where the sensor isn't working. And then you could talk about someone like Ian Waterman, who's unable to feel his body, who's lost his sense of proprioception. His sensor, the little proprioceptors were working, but basically the motorway, the nervous highway up to the brain was wiped out. So there was no communication From the sensor to the brain. And then in the brain, the chap whose balance isn't completely right, I think he had Parkinson's, the the chap who I was just explaining earlier, the Leaning Tower of Pisa from Satz's wonderful book. He had Parkinson's, so I don't think his, his, I think aspects of his brain weren't quite working. So essentially, it, you know, it can go wrong. Dizziness, similarly, can go wrong at each and every stage.
2: Yeah, this is. So fascinating. Another sense I would love to talk a little bit about is one that I think people think about sometimes with culture and romance. So pheromones, are those real? Are we actually attracted to people through these scents? So
0: pheromones are certainly real. (laughs) Whether the, the kind of the love potion for humans, the love pheromone that we can't resist is real is not yet proven. There's some really interesting studies happening at the moment on babies. I think Benoit Charles at the university uh, a university in France, and I don't know whether the work is yet published, but I know he's looking at pheromones that are detected in a mo- in mother's milk that enable babies to guide them towards the breast and help them with breastfeeding. So, So that possibly will be the first human pheromone to be to be a, a love drug of another uh, between mother and child of another to, uh, of another kind but there are definitely pheromones in the animal kingdom and i talk about the very first pheromone to be discovered which was bombacol which comes from the silk moth but there are also lots of interesting, and, and that's what the chapter looks at lots of interesting ways in which smell subconsciously, subliminally plays to our, perhaps our sense of love or attraction. Really interesting study on the MHC genes you you mentioned in in passing, the major histocompatibility complex genes, which essentially are genes that look after our immune system. And there's been some really fun studies on getting members of the opposite sex to smell sweaty t-shirts. And they make choices on, on which smells they prefer Based or and, and 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 when the numbers are crunched, what they find is a woman might choose a man who has compatible genes with her MHC complex. The idea being that by having babies together, you'd create babies with stronger immune systems. So there are many ways in which smell does get involved in dating, in in attraction, but we have yet to find the human human kind of love drug. (laughs) Titania's love, Puck's love drug for Titania. But, you know, there are scientists who think, you know, it, it will be found. It's been found pheromones. I mean, since that discovery of bombacol in moths, pheromones have been found nearly everywhere throughout the animal kingdom in so many different places. I think most recently in elephants. So the idea that this is another theme of the book, the idea that we think we're special, that we're different is to me as a zoologist, a bit of a nonsense. You know, we, we have a deep evolutionary past with all these creatures. We share commonalities in, in many different ways. So I'm of the belief that we will find a human pheromone, whether it's as, as compelling as people fear, whether it's, it completely banishes free will, I doubt. But I think it would, it, you know, I suspect that we will find one and it will be, it will encourage attraction. It's all in the gray areas rather than the black and white.
2: anti-aging help with your stress help with lack of sleep and or optimize your partying you need these patches friends and i'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys 100 off which is incredible so to get that discount just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer that's i-o-n-l-a-y-e-r and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner Code Melanie Avalon for one hundred dollars off. I find it interesting that I guess I don't really know enough to make this statement, but <laughs> it seems like there is a lot of studies on it. So I find it interesting that it's not more crystallized
0: yet in the research. Yes, well, it's, it's highly political as well. I mean, it's but so th- so the evidence when it comes is going to have to be watertight. Okay, that makes sense. If and when it comes,
2: because I was thinking about it because you mentioned how. In the studies, it does seem to indicate, like with the genes, that opposites likely attract. And so then I was thinking, well, that's interesting. So maybe maybe evolution set us up for mating and, you know, procreation in the beginning, but maybe it didn't set us up so much for longevity and relationships. Because I've heard that opposites attract, but similarities stay together is what they say. So I just wonder if it's hard to like find the perfect partner who's your opposite pheromone wise, but
0: similar as far as like personality and getting along and all of that? I think, I mean, the thing is we use our brains and very, we're not dictated by our senses and things. So, and there are very many, there are very many other things that come into play when we're thinking about attraction nowadays. So I think it's more complicated than just smell. I think smell's part of the story and is part of the story in a way that is surprising and intriguing, but there are very many other important factors. And, you know, looks, I mean, you know, the way someone looks. So yes, there's, yeah, (laughs) it's complicated. We are complicated. I don't think we're other, but we are in, in comparison to other species. You know, there are very many commonalities, but we're complicated in different ways just a few last things, speaking of genes and longevity and
2: because I'm really interested in all of that. I was fascinated. You talked about owls and their sense of hearing and how their hearing doesn't seem
1: to age. Yes, that's wonderful.
0: Yeah. That's a wonderful story. I I wasn't expecting that when I was in, um, when I was looking at the great gray owl and our sense of hearing, but that's um, an example of where contemporary science pops up in, in the book. There are remarkable similarities between the way that we hear and the way that owls hear and in the senses that we have to hear and in the senses that owls have to hear. So much so that scientists are looking to owls to cure human deafness because the extraordinary thing about the owls that they've studied, and there's this lovely study coming out of, Germany with owls where they've studied the hearing abilities of these owls from when they were little fledglings all the way to, to the ripe old age of kind of 20 odd you know a, a grandmother a queen you know a queen of the colony of the owl and her hearing is just as good as when she was you know 6 months old or whatever it was so yes owls ears do not age they are just as good as hearing as they are when, when, when they're fledglings. So that's a lovely story. Yeah, and I was surprised by that. It was, a, again, again, it, 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 it's back to the, the message of the book, which is the similarities between us and these other creatures that, I mean, imagine if we, the owl creates us, for us, a cure for deafness.
2: No, that's amazing. Well, I want to be really respectful of your time. So maybe, maybe just one last question about time. You have a really amazing chapter. We touched on it briefly earlier, but with the spiders and circadian rhythms, and you talk about isolation studies and what happens when people go in, you know, basically where they're not exposed to a concept of time or light and how do they adapt, you know, accordingly to that. Okay, so I have heard, and you mentioned this in the book, you talk about that the Earth's rotation is, you know, 24 hours-ish. I don't know if it's exactly 24 hours. Yes. And it's changed over its, yes, it's changed over time. Yeah. I didn't know that. I was like, oh, that that's interesting. You mentioned in the book that when they do these studies, that it seems that most people's inherent circadian rhythm is actually a little bit longer than 24 hours. I had heard that a reason that people were like night people versus early people might be that they have shorter or longer circadian rhythms. Do you know if there's credence to that?
0: Yes, there's really interesting work done on larks and owls. And there is, there is definitely, they call them chronotypes. So whether you are a person who gets up in the morning or a person who likes to stay up at night. And the science is very established on this. There's a wonderful book actually by Internal Time by Tilla Ronenberg which explores these different chronotypes and how they how they are and they're beginning to work out the genetics of it and they've discovered genes that make someone a, more make someone a lark again looking at unusual people who can't who fall asleep at night and get up really early they do have different genes and there is a sense that this chronotypes are genetically coded within us it they also change throughout our life so teenagers so it's obviously you know altered by hormones but teenagers definitely are tend to be more owl like and then as we get older we tend to become more l- lark like but apparently women tend to be more lark like than men so there are these these interesting broad generalizations Yeah, so it's a, it's a fascinating that's a fascinating study i mean the sense of time you know i talk about it in terms of circadian time but of course Time is very many things. I was reading the other day. It's the most used noun in the English language, and it means very many different things. So we could talk about the perception of time, how time unfolds in the minutes and the seconds and the minutes. And these circadian clocks are something different. Our body clocks are our twenty four hour clocks that keep us on track with night and day. They enable our bodies to be to basically function on a 24-hour schedule. So we know when to sleep, we know when to wake up, we know when to get hungry. We're very different biological creatures in the morning to be to being uh, to at night. And there's all sorts of amazing studies about we proofread better at certain times of day, we swim better at certain times of day. I mean, there's all sorts of extraordinary studies. So yes, yeah
2: really quick question because you mentioned men versus women and and you also talk throughout the book about how some things are, you know, different in men versus women or like with pain for example that women have a higher tolerance for pain have they studied this in animals for all the different senses female versus male I
0: don't know actually I don't know and with the pain issue it's very it's 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 difficult to know so so just coming back to that because these there's no way of measuring pain other than asking someone to say Okay, on a scale of one to 10, where would that lie? So the evidence from women is because a lot of women have gone through childbirth, they've probably experienced something more painful than, more, than most men. So when they're told, okay, on a, on, a, on a scale of one to 10, where do you fall? And you've got a bit of toothache and it's not, nothing like the labor you endured, you know, kind of last week, you go, well, it's a two. But someone who hasn't, so it's all—it's incredibly subjective. So I can't say that, that 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 women have a higher pain tolerance than men. I—I I, I mean, that's that's a tricky tricky sub. I do talk about how they're possibly better at touching than men because we've got smaller fingers and we have the, roughly the same number of touch sensors on our tips of our fingers. And given they're squeezed into a smaller area, we're probably a little bit like the star-nosed mole, us women, in that we can, we can feel the nuance of ridges and and topography closer, more detail, with more acuity than men. The pain thing, I've got, golly, I don't want lots of men to write and complain. (laughs) Okay, so clarification for listeners. (laughs) Perish the
2: thought. (laughs) Maybe someday there'll be a study showing men have better sense of direction.
0: Yes, or or maybe not. (laughs) I'll contest that too. (laughs) Well,
2: this has been absolutely so amazing. Thank you so much, Jackie, for your work. I just find it so fascinating. And I, I learned so much and I'm really excited about you coming out with another
0: book. Oh, thank you, Melanie. It's, you've obviously, you know, you've done a real close read of it and digested it. And I really appreciate that. I mean, you've brought out some lovely things to talk about. So thank you. The last question that I ask every
2: single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important
0: mindset is. So, what is
2: something that you're grateful for?
0: Oh, man, so many things, but maybe for my senses. And I think that, you know, each chapter I wrote made me incredibly mindful of whatever it is I was writing about. So, you know, from the first chapter where I talk about color, I became really fascinated by, I don't know, looking at all the different greens that I could see in a blade of grass or the chapter on smell. I became really interested in smelling my morning coffee. I think, I think there's a wonderful, again, I've mentioned him before, but Oliver Sacks is a big influence and he does have a lovely quote in his book about gratitude And I use it at the top of the book. And he talks about when he's just discovered that he has terminal cancer, he writes his last op-ed for the New York Times. And he talks about being the gratitude he feels and just being a sentient animal on this planet. I'm so behind that. I think those are words we should write large somewhere and think about every day.
2: I love that so much. Well, thank you so much. And I can't let you go without asking you, what is your favorite animal? I'm sure you get asked that all the time. I have to know though. I have to know.
0: (laughs) Well, my cat would say, it will get very cross if I don't say a cat. My whippet would get very cross if I say, if I choose that we have a Vizsla as well. I don't know where I am. Each day for me is a new favorite. I think I know so much about different animals that, you know, each day is a new favorite. I do have a soft spot having written sentient for the octopus.
2: Yes listeners, if for nothing else, I mean, get the book. There's so much more that we didn't even talk about, but the chapter on the octopuses, which I learned is octopuses, not octopi, will blow your mind. What happens when you cut off their? Literally, it it really will. (laughs) So that's just a teaser. Get the book.
0: (laughs) So thank you so much, Jackie. Pleasure. It was really lovely chatting to you. And I, yeah, look forward to another time when I have something more to talk about.
2: That would be incredible. How can
0: listeners best follow your work? So I'm on Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Yeah, and I'll be online soon as well. I've realized these are things that as an author I need to do. So those would be the best bits. But Twitter is something I use the most perhaps.
2: Awesome. Well, we will put links to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much again. I really hope we can speak again in the future because I just love everything you're doing and I'm so, so grateful for it. So thank you for your time.
0: Thank you my absolute pleasure thank you it was really fun I enjoyed our chat
2: have a good night because I know it's later there
1: (laughs) bye good night bye thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast for more information you can check out my book What When Wine Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo Style Meals Intermittent Fasting and Wine as well as my blog melanieavalon.com feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got it.